In fact, let's start into the sermon with that. And that is that it has recently come to my attention through a paper that was forwarded to me. Um, in fact, Mark sent it to me. It wasn't He didn't write it, but he sent it. And uh, I read through it, and it, it hit home immediately. And that is in relationship to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Um, before going there, this past week, uh, a lot has happened, and this morning, I woke up at 5.30, which is not something I normally desire on Sabbath morning, but uh, came wide awake, and I began thinking about today's sermon, and and began paging back into some other scriptures that have something to do with it. And I think we have some questions to answer today. The first is in Matthew 28, 19, 20, where it says to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Trinity, in other words. Why were we baptized into that? Is there anything we need to understand? Is that correct? Then, if it is not correct, is there anything we should or could do about it? Uh, should we be rebaptized is a question that comes on the table. Uh, thirdly, if we are rebaptized, should it be in the name of Christ or Jesus, or should it be in the name of Emmanuel? Those are all questions that I hope to answer today, and I think that in so doing, there's some information that came to me that was, to me, revelatory and astonishing. In fact, it'll kind of make your socks go up and down and maybe knock them off, I don't know. Uh, this is an understanding of a prophecy back in Isaiah that I had fiddled with and thought about several times over the last 12, 13 years and couldn't get a timeline on or a complete understanding of. We had partial understanding, I think, but this morning I believe that it very possibly came very clear. So we'll get to those things. So let's go to Matthew 28 at the moment and look at this. This is something that we had a tradition in the church of doing, is baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It never occurred to anyone to look at the original Greek uh, manuscripts and see if this was a correct rendition of this verse. I remember the little black book that they gave me in 66 when I was ordained that had the baptismal ceremony in it. And it said that we were to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said the other night in Bible study, or a couple of weeks ago, when I first introduced this paper, and a lot of you have received it since then, we tried to send it out to essentially the membership that we had knowledge of. And if you didn't receive it, uh, you'll get the gist of it today. Uh, but that was in there. I was baptized in 1962 in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And probably everyone in this room was, or within hearing of this microphone, because that's the way the church did it. That's what the little black book said to do. Was that correct? 
We'll examine the scriptures today. Now this paper uh, is 18 pages long, and the first 12, 13, or 14 pages of it, or 16, uh, have to do with quotes from the early Catholic fathers and those who had access to some of the original uh, Greek manuscripts, or the early Greek manuscripts at least. And I'm not going to go through all of that. Most of you have had access to the paper now for two weeks, and uh, what which Catholic father had to say is, to me, not all that important. My concern is, what does the Bible say, and does it agree with the rest of the Bible, uh, the rendition we have in the King James Version of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Is this a correct translation? I do want to quote one. Uh, that is Eusebius, <clears throat> who lived in the 300s, 400s. Uh, this shows in this paper that he had access to libraries that were later burned and access to more early Greek manuscripts than perhaps any other man did. Uh, he was a man, and I think this is an interesting point, who was a Trinitarian. He believed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And yet, he was essentially, I think, an honest Trinitarian. And when he examined the scriptures, and when he particularly examined Matthew 28, 19, he is on record in many places as having said that the Trinity, as espoused in this verse, was incorrect. According to Ludwig Knupfer, uh, Eusebius examined quite a few scriptures and found that the translation was incorrect in quite a few places, but the one that he denounced the most and talked about the most was Matthew 28:19, as being spurious and not a part of the Bible. Uh, it says he cites this text again and again in works between 300 and 336 in his commentaries, and the one who, according to Coney Bear, who was a, a, a scholar, he said he found 18 citations of Matthew 28:19, and always in the following form. This is what Eusebius said Matthew 28:19 and 20 ought to read, okay? Go you and make disciples of all the nations in my name, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. That, according to Eusebius, is the correct translation. If you want to write it in your margin or write it down, go you and make disciples of all the nations in my name, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. It does not even refer to baptism. Now the quote, I think it's in Mark or Luke, does in passing mention baptism, but it does not mention um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mention the Trinity at all. Now let's notice the context, first of all, here in Matthew 28 itself. Verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Emmanuel had appointed them. And when they saw him, one individual here is in the context, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Emmanuel came and spoke to them, saying, 
All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. The subject is one individual here, not three. Go you therefore, and as it probably should read, and make disciples of all the nations in my name, it's a personal pronoun throughout the entire context here, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. It does not make sense in the context when he's saying, do what I say, to then say, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because he said, all power is given to me. Now, is that a correct way of looking at it? What we need to do now is consider the scriptures about baptism in the New Testament to see indeed what the apostles thought of what he said in Matthew 28 and in Mark and in Luke. How did they interpret it and what did they actually in practice do? Let's go to Matthew 3. And here I want, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Matthew 3, verse 11. Speaking of John the Baptist here, uh, verse 8, verse 8, Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, uh, but realize that he indeed baptized them with water, verse 11, to repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, showing that the baptism would entail the Holy Spirit, and it would also bring great fire, great tribulation, great refinement. Uh, and if they were unconverted and would not receive the Holy Spirit, would not repent, that ultimately they would wind up in the fire. They'd get baptized in the lake of fire, I think is the ultimate meaning here. And then notice, uh, verse 13, Then comes Emmanuel from Galilee to Jordan, to John, to be baptized of him. I'm using Emmanuel in place of uh, Jesus here. I'll explain that more. We had a uh, sermon in atonement of, 19, of 1906, 2006. I ain't that old. Uh, showing that Emmanuel is a good thing to use. And we will get deeper into that today by far than we did in that particular sermon. And it has everything to do with this subject. But he came to be baptized of John. But John forbade him, saying, I have, I have need to be baptized of you, and you come to me. And Jesus answered and said to him, Suffer it to be so, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered it. So he went ahead and baptized him, John did. And Emmanuel, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, John, we'll find later, did not baptize into the Holy Spirit, as John himself said up in verse 11. But when he baptized Christ, Christ saw the Holy Spirit descending upon him, upon himself. So God did give the Holy Spirit to one individual whom John baptized, not to the rest, as John said, and as we'll later see in the book of Acts, but to Christ it did come.
Now, let's see, let's go to the book of Acts. We'll spend some time here. And let's start in verse, or chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, this is a book written by Luke, who was to set the record straight, as he says, at the beginning of the book of Luke. Uh, it says, verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So they were waiting until Pentecost, and you'll remember on Acts 2, at the 50th day on Pentecost, after Passover, when Christ died, the Holy Spirit came, uh, and this time it was a very visible thing, like tongues of cloven fire. Came down on Christ, he said, he saw it. He didn't say everybody saw it sinning as a dove. It said he saw it coming upon himself as a dove. Something apparently everyone else didn't see. And most people who read this interpret it that everybody saw this Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. That's not what it says. Here it came to the church in great power uh, on Pentecost here in Acts 2. And that's what he's referring to in, John, in, in verse 5. So he says the Holy Spirit would be involved with the next manifestation of God's Spirit. Um, and that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit would come. Let's go to Matthew 19 and verse 6, laying a little background here. Um, In this particular case, Paul uh, had come to Corinth, and he came to Ephesus, and he found certain disciples, beginning at the first of chapter 19. So here were some disciples of Christ, of the apostles. He said to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. So they had believed the words of Christ, the words of the apostles, they were disciples, but they hadn't had explained to them about the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, what then, or to them, what then were you baptized? And they said, to John's baptism. So they had been baptized by John, but they had not been told about the Holy Spirit because as John himself said, one will come later who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He didn't do it himself. So what did Paul do? Did he say, well, you've been baptized. The only thing that remains then is to have the laying on of hands and you receive the Holy Spirit. Because they had indeed been baptized, and John the Baptist, in Christ's words, was the most righteous man who had ever lived. But Paul did not accept that, did he? Let's read on. Then said Paul, John truly baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Emmanuel. So he did baptize the baptism of repentance and pointed them to Christ who would come. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of how many names? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or Ghost? No. In the name of the Lord Emmanuel. To them it would have been to the Lord Joshua, or Yahshua. And that is more correctly what we should use if we use uh, that name for him at all. 
It's hard for us, I think, to grasp if we read the Bible from the time we were little children, and everywhere we read throughout our lives about our Savior, in the King James and the New King James and the various translations we have today, everything we read says Jesus. So our minds have been conditioned from childhood, Sunday school, wherever we went, to hear about Jesus. Now, the word Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, never existed until the 15th century. Christ's own mother never said, come here, Jesus. She never used the word Jesus in his entire lifetime. His father never called him Jesus. No one ever called him Jesus. It was a name that did not exist. In the early Greek text, it was I-O-E-S-U-S or something like that, Eosus, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Yahshua, from whence we get the English name Joshua. There was no Y, or no J, I mean, in Hebrew. It was a a Y sound. So in Hebrew, there are some examples of Joshua's in the Old Testament, and, and again in the New Testament as well, we'll see. And that is the name that was given in Matthew 1 for our Savior was Yahshua, or Joshua in English. His mother called him Yahshua, not Jesus. That is hard for our emotions and our minds to grasp. But that is the fact of history. In fact, when the King James Version of the Bible was first introduced, it did not have Jesus in it. It had in the New Testament, Eosus, the Greek word for Joshua, or Yahshua of the Old Testament. A few years later, they came out with a second edition, and it had Jesus all through it. It was not even in the original English translation of, six, of uh, the 1600s, early 1600s. This wasn't there. So if I avoid using Jesus, I will tend to use Yeshua, or in English, I think that is permissible, Joshua. Uh, but we have seen that we need to even upgrade that, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. I'm going ahead and using Emmanuel here, though Joshua or Yeshua probably would fit okay in the New Testament, but certainly not Jesus. It wasn't in the original Greek. Paul didn't use it. James, Peter, and John didn't use it. The New World Order, at the end, will have a Messiah that comes that they will call Jesus. It's not biblical. It's not godly. It's a counterfeit of the true name of Christ. And Jesus is not the only name under heaven and earth whereby we may be saved. Yeshua, or Joshua, or Emmanuel, is. Anyway, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. So Paul saw fit to rebaptize. Now that's something that 
raises a question. If we learn something, and that is that we were baptized in the Trinity, uh, we're not, in other words, properly baptized, should it be redone? Now, don't think for a minute that I don't believe that we were begotten, even though we did not understand uh, Matthew 28:19 in its proper rendition, and did not therefore follow the rest of the scriptures, which we're going to examine here as we go along, that our baptism was invalid. I do believe that God beget Herbert Armstrong uh, in spite of the Trinity. He understood at some point that there is not a Trinity, and certainly I think most of us, as we had the truth expounded to us before we were baptized, learned that it was just the Father and the Son, that the Holy Spirit was not a person or separate individual, but was simply, uh, in a shortened version, the power of God, whereby he does things, not an individual itself. So there are not three, but two, who have a power and a spirit that goes throughout the universe to accomplish what they wish done. We understood that, but we were still baptized into the Trinity because we didn't understand. Now, it was explained way back that 1 John 5, 7 had been added to the Scriptures by uh, Erasmus, I think it was, a Catholic monk in the 4th century, in the 300s. Uh, I know that was taught to me in college in the early 60s. So I know I went back that far and probably further. But 1 John 5, 7 is not a part of the Bible. Well, Matthew 28, 19 is the only other verse that uses the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost or Spirit. The only other one. The rest do not use it. So, I believe Herbert Armstrong will be in the kingdom of God. I believe my father will be, though he was baptized into the Trinity. I believe many people who are in Worldwide Church of God are going to be in the kingdom of God, even though they did not or were not baptized in the name of Christ only. I think God is able to wink at our ignorance. He certainly winked at our ignorance on Pentecost for decades. He even winked at our ignorance of how the Passover should uh, be in sequence for many decades, and only recently changed that. And it is now that we see this. Why now? What does it have to do with anything? I hope to answer that question here today and let you see why it may be important that we be baptized in the name of Emmanuel. Let's go on, though, and prove this first. Um, Hebrews 6, verse 2. Keep your finger if you want to, and Acts will be right back there. Hebrews 6. Uh, he's talking here about not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ and laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God or the doctrine of baptisms or of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. <clears throat> We're not to leave those things. We're to move on and learn more things. But maybe we didn't understand fully about baptism. Let's go to Acts 2, verse 38. These people came, they heard they were, had their ears pricked by the sermon that Peter was giving, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yahshua Christ, 
for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He didn't tell them to be baptized into the Trinity. He told them in Christ only. It's the only name he uses. Uh, Acts 8, verse 16. Well, let's, let's go back for a moment to 14. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and they sent them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet it was not fallen upon them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Trinity? No, of the Lord Yahshua. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given them, he offered the money. The point, though, is that, uh, and Peter told him to go to hell with his money in plain English, but the point is they've been baptized only in the name of Christ himself. Acts 10, verse 48. We'll read several of these to show. Um... The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, verse 45 of chapter 10, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as you, as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Eternal. Now, in this case, God made an exception to the other scriptures, and he gave them the Holy Spirit, and then they came and were baptized. It's unusual, but God sometimes makes exceptions for his own purposes. I think here probably the purpose was that he wanted his apostles to recognize that he himself was working with the Gentiles. And because they had the idea in mind that God was only going to work with Israel. So God let them, people made an exception. They had the Holy Spirit and the demonstration of it. And then Peter uh was impressed that they also had the Holy Spirit. And then he said, well, go ahead and be baptized. God's already bypassed that and giving the Holy Spirit ahead of time. So this is an aberration or an exception. Acts 19, 5, we already read. Uh, Romans 6, we'll still come back to Acts, I think, but Romans 6. Uh, here I want verse 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Yahshua Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We were planted together with him. Now would the Father and the Holy Spirit, if there was a trinity, be a little miffed at some of these scriptures, would say that it was only in Christ himself? Well, the comment was made that somebody thought I died this last week. Well, I think I did. Or at least I hope I did, because I was rebaptized in the name of Emmanuel. And that should be the death of the old arrow, at least some more of him dying, and daily then crucifying the flesh and learning to walk as Christ walked. So indeed, this past week, I hope I died again. Because I kept trying, since my first baptism in 1962, I have been trying to come back to life. And every day, Daryl gets up out of bed, 
and tries to come back to life, and I have to tell him, down, get down. Christ is supposed to show in your face, in your voice, in your body, in the way I act and react. And it's difficult, because I keep trying to live. And we're supposed to die daily and crucify the flesh. Anyway, that's an aside. 1 Corinthians 6. And here we want verse 11. Oh, I'm in 7. That won't work. And uh, he's talking about here fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate and abusers of themselves and mankind or homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. Uh, These would not inherit the kingdom of God. This is talking about the physical sins that these people were living in before the Word of God came to them. They didn't even begin to understand spiritual things. So these were physical sins. They weren't spiritual adultery. They weren't spiritual drunkenness. They weren't spiritual uh, abusers or homosexuals. They were actually all those things, physically. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you are justified in the name of Yahshua and by the Spirit of our God. Not by the Trinity. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now let's tie that together with verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. We're not of the body of the Father or the Holy Spirit. We're of the body of Christ. And we're baptized into Christ, not into anyone else. One body, one spirit. Galatians 3.27 For as many as of, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Who is the example of the model that we are told throughout the Bible to follow? Christ. Walk as he walked. To think as he thought. We're not told to bring every thought into the captivity of the Father and the Son, but into the captivity of Christ. Now, he and the Father are one in their thinking. They are one in their purposes. And it is through Christ that we can approach the Father. So he is the one that has given power on heaven and earth. There was never a time that the disciples or apostles ever used any name to baptize people than that of Christ himself. All right, if you find one that's any different than that, let me know. I don't think you'll find it. So, I think we have established through the rest of the Bible and in the context of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that Baptism is to be named or done only in the name of Yahshua Christ or 
that being who is the Son of God. There are a couple of names that I think that are legitimate for him. Jesus is not one of them. Yeshua, or Eosis in Greek, or Joshua in English, can be correct. But we'll find that Emmanuel becomes front and center very, very important. And now I'm going to go away from this and show you that because it has everything to do with uh, what we are now facing and the question that needs to be answered, or some of the questions that need to be answered. Let's go, first of all, to Matthew 1. We examined this in at Atonement in 06, about 14 months ago. But I want to review it now and get into the subject. This is where Joseph uh, was told that uh, his wife was pregnant. Verse 18, Now the birth of Yeshua Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was his spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, Behold, the angel of the Eternal appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, or in Greek, Eosis, which is what was in the early translation of the English Bible. For he shall save his people from their sins. And Joshua, in Hebrew, Yeshua, means God is salvation. So his name specifically meant God is salvation. And he is the Son of God, and God, if you will, through whom salvation is offered to us. The only name under heaven whereby we may be saved. Correctly translated is Yahshua, or Eosis in Greek, or Joshua in English. I think all three are valid for us. I don't think the sacred names people have to have everything pronounced exactly just right. God allows translation. But it has to be a correct translation, and Jesus is not a correct translation. Yeshua, Ariosus, is. So, you shall call his name Yeshua. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the eternal by the prophet. Now he's speaking here of Isaiah. Now, it is really interesting <coughs> that Isaiah didn't call him Joshua or Yeshua. Here is the exact quote that the angel uses from Isaiah for the name of the Savior. Behold... Quoting from Isaiah 7:14, A virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Excuse me. <coughs> Pushing my voice a little. Now why would the angel quote Isaiah 7 and say his name would be Emmanuel, and just before that, the angel had said, she'll bear a son, and you're to call him Yahshua. 
That isn't what Isaiah said at all. <laughs> but they told him to call him, in English, Joshua. How do you get that out of that? Now, my King James translation uh, says that Yahshua, or Jesus, in verse 21, is actually Savior in the Hebrew, and God is salvation, means Savior. So God is salvation, which Joshua means, or Savior, is essentially the same thing, okay? So you were to call him Joshua. They will call him Emmanuel. All right, then the question on the table today is, who is they? Who is they? Let's go back to Isaiah. And here is where I think we're going to find an understanding that we have heretofore overlooked or not quite grasped. Now, the part of this that is interesting is that in chapter 7, it's, it's a, a story about a coup or a conspiracy to dethrone one man and put another in his place. Uh, a conspiracy to take over, basically. And this is found back in Kings and in Chronicles. The story is told back there about these kings and what would happen. But the interesting thing about this that I have debated over the years is in verse 8, where it says, in three score and five years, or within, excuse me, three score and five years, shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people or a nation together. But it will be broken in pieces and no longer be a nation. Now, it says within 65 years of the events that Isaiah 7 and 8 are talking about, Okay. And I've always wondered, when then do you start counting this to know when it will occur? So he says the conspiracy here will wind up with Ephraim being broken. Now let's let the Bible interpret itself. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. That is, Ephraim was one of the twelve tribes, and Samaria was the capital of the northern ten tribes. Uh, now, where was I? And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Now, that was the king of Israel, otherwise known as Pekah or Remaliah, same person. If you will not believe this, surely you shall not be established. King James Margin says, if you don't believe this, it's because you are not stable. You're not willing to listen to the word of God and understand and be stable in what you know. Moreover, the Eternal spoke again to Ahaz, saying, <clears throat> he was the king, ask you a sign of the Eternal, your God. Now that's unusual, but Isaiah asked this king to ask for a sign. We're told in other places that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Well, Ahaz was part of an evil and adulterous generation, but in this case he was instructed to seek one. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I attempt the Eternal. I'm not going to ask for a sign. All right? And then Isaiah said, Hear you now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? He says, look, I told you to ask God for a sign, and now you're 
saying, I'm not going to do that. Now, you've already wearied men with your reign. Are you also going to weary God? Therefore, the Eternal Himself shall give you a sign. If you won't ask for one, God's going to give you one anyway. Now, this is a sign that has to do with this conspiracy and Ephraim being broken. <laughs> Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, that's quoted in Matthew 1. A virgin shall conceive. It was talking about, in an overall sense, Christ and the baby that would be born to Mary. That's very clear in Matthew 1, okay? Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Butter and honey are good. And he would learn that that was good and not to eat things that were evil. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now let's understand that Isaiah is an end-time book, and we'll see that clearly, I think, before we're done here. That a child would be born to a virgin, and that before he was old enough, or before he was old enough to know good from evil, Ephraim would be destroyed. Now, throughout the prophecies, <clears throat> the church is spoken of as the virgin daughter of Israel. In the New Testament, Paul referred to the Corinthians who had been uh, physically a very adulterous, fornicating, uh, ungodly people. Once they were baptized, he called them chaste virgins of God. So right there, the church, or people in the church, in that particular congregation, were called virgins. Virgins in Christ. Virgins in God. Their sins wiped away through baptism. Okay? Baptism is a beginning of a Christian life. The seed of the ghetto comes when we have laying on of hands of God's Spirit, and then we're supposed to grow over a period of time to mature and be born into the kingdom of God. So it is indeed a beginning. It is a beginning that we here as adults went through. We were baptized, had the laying on of hands, and received the gift of God's Holy Spirit, and therefore were to grow. Now, it was done in the name of the Trinity, and that's partly what brings this scripture to the table to see if that was correct. And based on where we are in history and in prophecy today, if we are to be rebaptized, what name should be used? Now notice here in Isaiah, I'm going to briefly go through <clears throat> the context. Isaiah wrote concerning Judah and Jerusalem, uh, basically the Jews, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and so on. We know that spiritual Israel is the church today. That's very clear in Hebrews 12 and other places in Galatians where called, he calls the church the Israel of God. Now, to some, they call this replacement theology, where we've replaced ancient, the physical Israel with spiritual Israel, the church. And what I teach and have taught is not replacement theology. I still believe very deeply that physical Israel exists, 
and that the prophecies have to do with physical Israel. But what I have been teaching is that it is a dual theology, that there is also spiritual Israel, the church, and that these prophecies have to do first with the church as a spiritual body, and secondly with physical Israel in the kingdom of God and beforehand when she is destroyed. So both those lines of thought go as trails throughout all the prophecies and, in fact, the entire Bible. It is not replacement theology, but additional theology, if we might coin a term. It applies to both physical Israel and to spiritual Israel. Anyway, he talks about a small remnant in chapter 1 of Isaiah that will be uh, faithful, uh, and I think that that is true of physical Israel. Uh, 10% will survive and go into the millennium. But of the church itself, only a 10% remnant will remain faithful and be brought together uh, as a microcosm of the millennium uh, to be trained to be the teachers and kings and priests in the millennium. It talks about in the last days in chapter 2, verse 2, that the mountain of the eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So in the last days, God is going to begin to establish what will ultimately become his entire kingdom in the world tomorrow by establishing a small kingdom of his remnant believers at the end. And it will be in the mountains and the hills. And many people will come, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. God is going to establish his end-time church to preach the truth from Zion and Jerusalem. And we need to understand where Zion and Jerusalem are. And I do not believe at this time that they are in the Middle East. That is a counterfeit Zion and a counterfeit Jerusalem. It has to come from the original promised land, and we'll get to there in just a moment. And he'll judge among the nations, and they'll begin to learn, finally, a peaceful way once his kingdom is fully established in the millennium. He tells us to, in verse 10 of 2, to enter into the rock and hide in the dust for fear of the eternal. Uh, man will be brought down. Chapter 3, it talks about the terrible sins of our nation Israel today in Judah. And in chapter 4, in that day, again, it's speaking of the latter days, as mentioned in chapter 2, Seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will our own bread, and so on. Uh, seven churches will take hold of one man. All seven churches will exist at the end. Revelation 2 and 3 are the seven churches. God says in Isaiah 41, He will establish seven churches in the wilderness. There is a spiritual wilderness that has existed since uh, worldwide went into a spiritual wilderness. But it will also be in a physical wilderness that this is done. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 40. So seven churches will take hold of one man, and it shall come to pass, in verse 3, that those who are escaped of Israel, that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living, spiritually living, in Jerusalem. He'll take away the filth of the daughters of Zion. The daughters of Zion are the churches of the scattered church today. He'll purge the blood of Jerusalem by judgment and burning, by trial, tribulation, trouble, and so on. And the eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies 
a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. Now let's make sure we understand this is end time, because this is what is quoted in Zechariah 2, and saying that Jerusalem shall be built as villages without walls, with much men and cattle there. And the context there is very strictly and specifically the time of the two witnesses at the end of the age, when Jerusalem will be built by those men as uh, the towns of God, which will comprise Jerusalem. And it says right there in Zechariah 2 that there will be a wall of fire around them and a covert from the heat, <clears throat> which is saying essentially what we're reading right here in Isaiah 4. So that gives specifically, directly, and dogmatically the timing of when God is going to protect his people and have the smoke and the wall of fire and all of that. It'll be during the times of the two witnesses when the church is brought together to build the temple of God, the latter temple. And it will outshine that which came before. That God has blown apart recently. Then in chapter 5 he talks about his vineyard, and how it did not produce what it should have, and how he's allowed it to be torn down. That is talking about the church today, and how it will be torn apart. Now that is a passage, and all of these are, which also apply to physical Israel. Physical Israel has become godless, and satanic, and it too will be torn down, and have to be rebuilt in the millennium. But the church has to be built by the two witnesses before the millennium ever starts. We all understand that, but I want to emphasize it here as we go through leading up to Isaiah 7, showing that these passages are about the two witnesses in the latter-day temple right at the end of the age. It's important that we understand that uh, as we approach this chapter. He said in verse 9 of chapter 6, and he said, Go and tell this people, hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. We have been commissioned to tell them about the Passover, about Emmanuel, about a lot of things that we have learned, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to hear. Passover paper went out and dropped like a lead cloud upon the church. It's true, it's provable, but nobody could see, hear, or understand. Then, verse 11, Then said I, Isaiah speaking, Lord, how long, how long is this going to last? And he answered, Until, this gives you timing, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man. Zephaniah 1 says that we'll build great McMansions and that then we will not live in them. We have the mortgage foreclosure business going on in a very heated manner right now. In America, we have, through a great credit boom, built all kinds of houses, but we're not going to dwell in them. They're all going to be taken away. It is happening right before our very eyes. And the land be utterly desolate. So houses are being taken away, and when the land is made desolate by the beast power, then all the houses will be taken away. And the Eternal have removed men far away, says he'll take them into captivity. And there'll be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. There'll be a great falling away at the end time. Love will not uh, be there, and many will betray one another, as Matthew 24 says. Those who endure to the end will be saved. 
But yet in it shall be a tenth, a tithe, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So God's seed, those he begat, will be the substance of the remnant who come back. And that remnant shows to be stirred by God and come to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, at the end time. So that is the context, that is the time element that we are discussing here, okay? Now the reason I'm going through that is to show you that Isaiah 7 and Ephraim being destroyed within 65 years is for now. Now the within is important. If I tell you on Sunday morning, I will be back in two days, or I will be back in three days, then you know exactly when I'm coming back, because you can count to two and three, and I have given you a specific. Now, if I don't know how long the trip is going to take, and therefore I don't know how logistics and the itinerary will go, and I tell you I will be back within a week, I can't tell you it will be three days, but it will be within a week then you know that I will not be any longer than a week, but it could be within four, five, six days. To be shorter, but not longer than a week. So the way this is stated, within 65 years, not exactly 65 years, not longer than 65 years, but within that framework, and it is implying less than 65 years, is it not? Is that the way you'd interpret that in English? Now, we also need to establish who Ephraim is. We'll get down to some dates a little later on, which may have some bearing upon this. Because it talks about Ephraim. Now, let's go back, first of all, to Genesis now, we were taught in worldwide many, many years ago in the booklet about Israel uh, in Judah that Ephraim was England and America was Manasseh. I have come since to believe that the two brothers of Joseph should be reversed. Jacob believed that too. Notice in chapter 48, I'm not going to go and read the whole thing for sake of time, but here is where Joseph brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, before Jacob, his father. Now, Jacob was going to pronounce a blessing upon them. Now, Jacob was getting blind, couldn't see very well, but so when Joseph brought the two sons, Jacob placed his right hand on Ephraim, and his left hand on Manasseh. And Joseph said, no, the birth order is the other way, that the right hand ought to go on Manasseh, he was the firstborn, and the second hand, the left hand, on Ephraim, because the right hand signified more power, and firstborn. That one should go on, uh, the right hand on Manasseh, the left hand on Ephraim. And Jacob said, not so, Joseph. I know what I'm doing. I'm reversing this. Let's read that part of it. 
verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also, Manasseh, shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Herbert Armstrong said a, a company of nations. And he said that was Ephraim. But no. Truly his younger brother, Ephraim is the younger, shall become greater than Manasseh. Now we are a company or a multitude of city-states or nation-states, states, that have become united as the USSR. Did I say that right? The United States Soviet or Socialist Republic. Not, so, not Soviet, but the United States Socialist Republic. We are now socialist, and we have come over even further than that to fascist, a government ruled over by multinational corporations combined with a government that answers only to them, bankers and corporations, the USSR. And he blessed them that day, saying, And you shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Now, which was the older? Manasseh. Which was the older country here in the end time? Great Britain. Did the pilgrims go from here to England? Or did they go from England to here? Manasseh, the older, was already there. The younger came out of the older we came from Europe and from England to settle this country. So Manasseh, in that sense, was the older country. Ephraim is the younger. But the younger has supplanted Manasseh, and we are much bigger, much stronger, and much more prominent, and we are 50 states that have begun combined, a company or a multitude of states who have come under one Babylonian government, even though we're Israel. A bigger company and a bigger population than Great Britain and the Commonwealth have or have had. We always thought it would be Great Britain and South Africa and uh, Australia, New Zealand, and only the white population basically of South Africa that would comprise Ephraim. Well, the population of all those countries doesn't even begin to come close to the population of America alone. Okay, let's go on and read about uh, Joseph in chapter 49 of verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a wall whose branches run over, or well, whose branches run over the wall. It will be a very fruitful, productive country, which has been the most fruitful and productive nation in the last days, the United States. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. We are now hated of all nations as a people, as Israelites, and soon we will be a spiritual Israelites, hated of all nations, as Matthew 24 says. But his, abode, his bow abode in strength. Everybody's shooting at us, but we still have the strongest bow, the strongest military on earth, don't we? Britain doesn't. We had to protect them in World War I and II. 
We saved their bacon. Yeah, they are unclean. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now who is the shepherd and who is the stone of Israel? Christ. Is he an Ephraimite or Manassite? No, he was of Judah. And yet this is talking about Joseph and it's talking about Christ. Now there's an explanation for that. We're the end time nation of, is of Ephraim, but Judah, Utah, Judah, the land of the Tau, of the T, coming out of the Torah, Mount Sinai right up here, is the original land of Judah. And it is in the last days in the land of Ephraim. I think I can prove that. And that Christ is of Judah. The original Judah was right here. <clears throat> Even by the God of your Father who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above. These blessings were not conferred upon anyone but Joseph, and more particularly upon Ephraim, whom Jacob said would outstrip Manasseh by far. God will help you. He'll bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under. There will be blessings that come from below. Keep that in mind. Uh, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, of our offspring, of Ephraim, has far supplanted Manasseh in that sense, the U.S. population. The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. So we find Christ linked with Ephraim here in the end time because this is what would be fought. These tribes when? In Genesis? No. Read the first verse of chapter 49. Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. He was talking to his physical sons there, saying, This is how you will be thousands of years from right now. And we just read what would happen to Joseph at the end. Let's go to Deuteronomy. This is another layer of the onion that can be added on. Now, <clears throat> chapter 31 of Deuteronomy gives the context of what he is talking about here, and it is an end-time prophecy. Way back in the book of Moses, we have an end-time prophecy. Chapter 31, verse 29. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the eternal to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. So he's saying, what I'm giving you is a prophecy of the end times the latter days. Okay? Now let's go to Chapter 33. This is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Eternal came up from Sinai and rose up from Seir to them. He shined forth from Mount Piran 
and he came with ten thousands of saints. Now this is a latter-day prophecy. How many Israelites were were there back then? We've estimated perhaps three and a half million left Egypt. Why is he here talking about ten thousands of his saints coming with him? Because it's an end-time prophecy of Christ coming back and resurrecting 144,000 who are presently being formed and sealed in the latter days. Jude even refers to Christ returning with tens of thousands of his saints in the book of Jude New Testament. Not the entire physical Israel, but the spiritual Israelites who number in the tens of thousands, not the millions. Why does Christ say in the Ten Commandments itself, giving grace to thousands of them who keep my law? That law was given from Mount Sinai over here in to millions of people. But he said he would bless thousands who would keep his law. And it is truly only thousands out of six and a half billion people on earth today who follow God's commandments. That's the way it is. Okay? Ten thousands of saints from his right hand won a fiery law for them. Yes, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand or his hand. And they sat down at your feet. Everyone shall receive of your works. Uh, let's go on down here. Let's read the blessing of Judah, verse uh, verse 7. This is the blessing of Judah. And he said, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and be thou in help to him from his enemies. That's all it says about Judah. Now, where are we dealing with Judah today? There are far more Jews in America than there are in the land of Israel, the nation we call Israel today. Far, far more. And if this is the land of Ephraim... Judah is mostly among us, even as I said that physically this is the land of Ephraim and the land of, original land of Judah is within it. So both are the case. They'll come to their people. Okay? Verse 13, and of Joseph he said, now this is Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph, blessed of the eternal be his land. God told Abraham he would give him a promised land, that it would be a wonderful and fruitful land. What land is more fruitful than this one? What land have we, as Joseph, been given in the end times? Would it not be the promised land? What did God promise Abraham? I will make your children as the sands of the sea. Lots and lots of them. And that has happened here in the end time. Well over 300 million of us. And we have predominantly been Israelites until recently when the Gentiles have been moving in more and more. This is the land promised to Abraham. I think he was standing in this land when that was made because that's where God has given us today. He said, this is the land I will give you where you are standing. Now I ask you, what land has he given Ephraim and Judah today? This one. There's a few Jews in Israel, and most of them are Edomites, not true Jews. There are far more Jews here 
than there are there. I mean, many times over. Go to Miami Beach and try to find a place on the beach where there ain't one. Or New York, or L.A., or San Francisco. Huge contingencies of Jews in those areas and other places across this country. Okay? Let's go on. Blessed of the eternal be his land for the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep that couches beneath. We are rich in minerals. We are rich on top of the ground. And I think we shall see also, if you want to read Isaiah 44 and 45, that God will bring us a Cyrus, a man who is not converted, who will also give us the riches of the depths from underground. And it will happen in this country, Joseph, more specifically Ephraim. For the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon. And for the chief things of the ancient mountains. The mountains of Ephraim are termed by God the ancient mountains. Well, this is a fairly new country. When he says in Zechariah 12, 6, Jerusalem will be built in her place, in her own place. The two witnesses will come up in this land. Where did God begin his end time work? This land. Not over there in the Middle East in Israel, but in the nation God gave to his people as the promised land, which was the original land that Abraham walked, and God says, what you see is what I'm going to give your people who will number as the sands of the sea. These are the ancient mountains here, where God's people dwelt. Now, all mountains on earth may be roughly the same age. So ancient here is not referring to the age of the hill itself, or the dirt and rocks, but where the ancient ones lived and dwelt. And for the precious things of the lasting hills. Isaiah 44 and 45 show that God is going to give the hidden riches of the mountains. And for the precious things of the earth and fullness thereof, for the good will of him that dwelt in the bush. Within Joseph was the place where God showed Moses the burning bush. I think it says that right here. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. Brethren, His glory is like the firstling of his bullock. God was known as a bullock because of his strength by the ancients. And Ephraim today, the United States, is known for its strength among the nations. And his horns are like the horns of unicorns, sticking up like volcanoes. With them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. Speaking of Joseph, it says that that is the place where God will begin to push his people together. Now he tells Joshua and Zerubbabel in the end time that he will stir the people to come and build the latter temple. The former temple on Herbert Armstrong was in the United States, Pasadena, Los Angeles the southwestern U.S. I believe 
that the latter temple under the two witnesses will come together in the same area and that in Joseph, in Ephraim, God will begin to push those people where he wants them to go. And it will be in Ephraim, Joseph, it says so, right here in this prophecy about Joseph in the end time. Now notice, and there are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Under Herbert Armstrong, where were the ten thousands and where were the thousands? Ten thousands were in this country. The thousands were in Britain and Canada. And a, maybe a couple, three thousand in Australia. But the vast majority, the tens of thousands, were in this country a prophecy fulfilled in Joseph in Ephraim, which would be bigger than Manasseh. This establishes what God has since done. The tens of thousands in Ephraim and the thousands in Manasseh of the worldwide church of God, spiritual Israel, whom he's called at the end time. That work was done by the tens of thousands right here. That shows that we are Ephraim, and that Manasseh is smaller, and the church is also smaller. Now let's go to Jeremiah 31. Let's see something very interesting here. Notice again the timing, chapter 30, verse 24. In the latter days you shall consider it. The time of God coming is a whirlwind in his fury. He tells us in chapter 30, verses 17, I will heal you of your wounds, says the Eternal, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. The virgin daughter of Israel, that part of the church whom God chooses to use, is going to be an outcast, and they'll say nobody's interested in them. Nobody seeks them, whoever they are. That's what will be said of the ones God begins to use, okay? Whoever that is. Thus says the Eternal, verse 18, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. In the end time, God says, Jerusalem will be builded upon her own ruins. Now Jerusalem in the Middle East has been there now for centuries, thousands of years. It had been destroyed at times thousands of years ago and built it on its own heap. But we're talking about here at the end time. And that hasn't happened lately. We're looking for a desolate Jerusalem in her true original place who will be builded upon her own heap, her own waste, her desolation. Okay? In the latter days you shall consider it, verse 24. Now to chapter 31. This is a continuing thought. At the same time, in the latter days, says the Eternal, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. He's going to gather his true people as a remnant, as a tithe, from all over the earth. They'll be pushed together in Ephraim. We just read in Deuteronomy 33. Thus says the Eternal, The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. 
Now speaking spiritually or physically, that has to be here, not Great Britain. Okay? The spiritual, the biggest spiritual wilderness is where the greatest number of church members were when it became a wilderness, spiritually. That's the United States, bigger wilderness than England. Physically speaking, there is no wilderness in England or the United Kingdom. You can't fly in there without having clouds over it most of the time and land in the rain at Heathrow or Gatlin. Most of the time, when you fly over it, it's hard to see Ireland and England. It's nearly always covered with clouds. It is not a wilderness. It is a green place. And this, we'll find in a moment, is talking about Ephraim. And it says, grace in the wilderness. The Eternal has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. Now remember Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1. A virgin shall conceive. A church will conceive, if you will. Keep that in mind. O virgin of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tabrets and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. You shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria and in, in uh, Israel. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. There's going to be plenty of prosperity that God is going to give to his people when that remnant of the church comes together. You shall plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria, all the common things. Verse 6, for there shall be a day, okay? There shall be a day in the latter days that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you and let us go up to Zion to the eternal our God. Was Herbert Armstrong a watchman for Israel? I believe he was. Where did he arise? In England? No, he arose here, in the real Ephraim. Now it says, watchmen. There are two watchmen yet to come. Where are they going to rise up? In the wilderness of Ephraim. And shall cry, Arise you, let us go up to Zion, to the Eternal our God. Now Zechariah 2 tells us in the time of the two witnesses, Christ will come and dwell among us. What does dwell among us mean? It means God with us. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God will be with us in the time of the two witnesses in Ephraim. And Zion will be there. Where? In England is a place called Zion that has a mountain that is the joy of the whole land and that you can go down into, as the Psalms say you can do with Zion. Nowhere. Is there such a place in America? It is a joy of all the land. It has been made into a national park. That's how much stock they have put in the beauty of it. And the heights of Zion are here in Ephraim, not in Manasseh, the United Kingdom. So, the watchmen, the two witnesses, will arise in Ephraim and say, 
go to Zion. For thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Publish you, praise you, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Where does the remnant come? God says he'll come to Joshua and Zerubbabel in the book of Haggai. He will stir them to do so. We just read in Deuteronomy how he will push them into Ephraim from all over the earth. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth. And with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travails with child together. You're told to go to Zion. It's told a daughter of Zion, a virgin, will conceive and bear a son named Emmanuel. Okay? We'll see you up there in a minute. But it's talking about travailing with child here. I am trying to bring forth Christ in my character and persona. And I am having a great travail with that. Because Daryl Henson does not like to be like Christ. I like to be like something else. And so do you. That's why we have a fight. <laughs> a great company shall return there. Then shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. <laughs> Judah was lit, I mean Reuben literally was the firstborn. God changed the order. Manasseh truly was the firstborn. But God changed the order. And he said, I am lifting Ephraim up to be my firstborn. That is where most of those who will be firstborns, who will be firstfruits, were raised up in the end time, and it is the same place that God is going to gather his remnant at the end from all over the earth. Ephraim is the place, and it's where the watchman will stand. Hear the word of the eternal, you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, he that scattered Israel, speaking of the church, and ultimately of physical Israel, uh, will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. That ties in with the two witnesses at the end time in Haggai and Zechariah. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. People from all over Israel, not just Ephraim and Manasseh, but all of Jacob. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, in the mountains, up high, in the elevation of Zion. There is no such thing in the Middle East. What they call Mount Zion there isn't even a hill outside Jerusalem's wall. It is only here that we have mountains that could be described as the height of Zion and named Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the eternal for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, verse 13. Okay? Talking about the virgin all through here both young and old, together. There shall yet be children playing in the streets of Jerusalem, and old men will be there as well. Okay? What time is it? Is it ten after two already? I'm just getting started really good. I told you to have an extra tape. I really do want to finish this. Can You, you want to rise and stretch a minute? This really gets interesting before we're done. Okay. 
I think it's time now to go back to Isaiah 7. And we'll try to begin to put this together and wrap it up. I've been giving you some various things here that do come together right here. All right. Rather than go through all the history of this, there was a conspiracy, a coup to take over the government of Judah. And it was done by uh, Israel and the Arabs. And he said, don't worry about it because Ephraim will be broken within 65 years. And again, this is talking of the end time as I went back through Isaiah 1 through 6 and showed you that it's the latter days, it's the end time, that the scriptures in Isaiah 6 match perfectly with Zechariah 2 and the wall of fire and so on around the towns of Jerusalem at the end time during the time of the two witnesses, which is certainly end time, okay? So that's it's talking about this end time period and that a virgin will conceive and bring forth Christ. All right. Where do we fit in the 65 years? That is a question that I have wondered about for a lot of years. I listened to a tape some years ago, actually, a couple of years ago, I guess it was, by Don Esposito. Uh, I met him once when he was associated with some of my children, and I forget whether it was in Pasadena or Grand Junction or Chile or just where it was, where my kids were at the time, and I, and I do believe that I, I met him or his brother, I think it was Don, that I met. Anyway, he has since moved to Jerusalem in the Middle East, thinking that's where he should be, and maybe he should be at the moment, I don't know. I won't argue with him about that. But he gave this tape, and I listened to it again here recently, and picked a couple of things out of it that I think are important to this scripture. So I want to give credit where credit is due. And in fact, I would like to play that tape for you. I think I'll do it the next New Moon study, which is, I think, February 3rd. It's either Saturday or Sunday night coming up. Uh, I would encourage you, if at all possible, to be here for the next New Moon study, because this tape will fill you in on a lot of things that are going on in the world and in the Middle East and why they're happening the way that they're happening. It's very insightful. So I, I would like to play it for you. But there's one element I wanted to take out of that and add some things to it that I thought was important. What would be the most important year in recent history in terms of what is going on in the world today? Anybody care to choose a number? Well, Don felt it was 1947. He went to further to say that he thought that that was the year. Remember, it says this generation will not pass until Christ does these things there in Matthew and Luke. Uh, and he thinks that 1947 is the year that that began. I was three years old. <clears throat> now, here's why he said that. FDR... Franklin Roosevelt, one of the greatest communist socialistic people, traitors of America that has ever lived, in 1933, uh, and he was a 33-degree Mason, 
after the depression which was caused by the bankers on purpose, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his minions got control of most of the broadcasting of this nation. They also, or he also, stated a national emergency and allowed executive orders then to be written without laws being written by Congress. And every president since then, first act of office has been to extend the emergency order so that they could continue to write executive orders apart from Congress. We have been, since 1933, in a virtual state of war. Now, I say that because back in the 1800s, Albert Pike wrote of World War I, World War II, and World War III, that these would be caused by the people who are establishing the New World Order. And in the letter he wrote, the protagonists in World War I were just like he said, the ones in World War II were just like he said, World War II was formed basically in order to destroy the religious Jews. And Hitler was a pawn in that. He was financed by the Catholic Church. He was financed by the grandfather of George Bush. And his purpose was to destroy the religious Jews. The Edomite Jews, the secular Jews... They did not want to destroy. They wanted them to go to the Middle East and form a country there because Jerusalem has always been at the base of this. The New World Order, the New World Religion, wants its headquarters in that Jerusalem. And they have been working toward that ever since. They began, the Catholic Church began the Muslim movement. Mohammed, or at least Mohammed's uncle, was a Coptic Christian associated with the Catholic Church. They say Mohammed himself was dumb as a post, but his uncle fed him what he should do. The Catholic Church wanted to control Jerusalem. So they enlisted the Arabs, who became Muslims under Mohammed, and then the Arabs being what Arabs are, wild ass of a man, took the bit in their teeth and decided they would rule themselves. And that's why the Crusades occurred and happened around Jerusalem, was to bring those Mohammedans, Muslims, back under the control of the Catholic Church. It didn't work out too well. But that's been their goal ever since. Now, in 1947, after World War II, when they had destroyed many of the religious Jews, they started the State of Israel, formed it, 1947. And they began to move, after Allenby, from the British general, went into the area and basically conquered it, they began to move secular, non-religious Jews into that country. They didn't want religious Jews there who would look to God. They wanted atheist Jews as much as possible, and Edomites. So the State of Israel was formed in 1947 for that purpose. The International Monetary Fund was established in 1947. International Monetary Fund. Part of the New World Order, an international organization, okay? The World, not the Bank of England, not the Bank of America, the World Bank 
was established in 1947. NATO was established in 1947. The United Nations was established in 1947. Herbert Armstrong went there. I think it started out as the League of Nations in 47 and later morphed into the United Nations, if I remember correctly. But that which became the United Nations certainly began in 1947. The Council on Foreign Relations started in 1947. That's getting to be quite a list. The Council on Foreign Relations' purpose in life is to make international law and then report it to the masses, to us, in whatever form they wish to report it. And most of the members of the press, TV, radio, in the United States, belong to the Council on Foreign Relations. Larry King, Barbara Walters, the list goes on and on. So, in 1947, Satan began his major move toward a world government. Now, the eggs had been laid long before with the Knights Templar, with the Masons, and so on. But the eggs began to hatch in 1947, and out came all these international institutions, 1947. Adon didn't mention it, but it occurred to me, Satan began his major move in 1947. And those chickens have been growing and getting stronger, and they've about grown into real chickens. They're going to start some roosters growing pretty quick now. But also in 1947, what else happened? Herbert Armstrong established Ambassador College. Satan realized that if he was going to have a world government to rule the earth, he needed to get started because he knew that the work of one man, Herbert Armstrong, could go only so far as a one-man show. Herbert Armstrong himself realized it and said, I have to start a college to train men because I go somewhere, I raise up a church, and it falls apart and dies. I have to have a college to train men if this work is to grow. So, Satan and his minions said, we need these institutions if our work is going to grow and become an international government. And God was doing the same thing himself. It is only through Ambassador College and what formed there that the work of God began to grow and cover the earth. So Satan was counterfeiting exactly what God was starting in 1947, if you will. I think that was a very important year. Now, back to Isaiah 7 with that background. Add 65 to 1947, and you come to 2012. Okay? That's only four years away from now, isn't it? This is... 2008, one month nearly gone already in 2008. Isn't very far off, is it? Especially maybe the first part of 2012. We're only talking under three years. So it's close. It's the only point I want to make there. Now let's go back here and read this. Within 65 years will the United States, Ephraim, be broken. Now if we use 1947... Now, I don't know that that is the year to use, 
But I sure can't find a more important year as I look back to Satan's new world order and God's own institution of the Church of God. A very important year. Both counts. So let's just do this, okay? From that. That could be wrong, but let's assume for the moment it's right. I'm not making a prediction or a prophecy here. I'm just letting the chips fall, more or less, and see how they fit this story. Here's the sign that God would give. That Ephraim would crash and not be a people within or less than 65 years after a conspiracy was made to destroy. Now, when did that conspiracy of the world and Satan begin to hatch? 1947. It goes on to say in chapter 8, don't fear the conspiracy as people will tell you to. Fear me. Fear God. But that's when those eggs began to hatch, when they formed those institutions and began to spread the new world government around the world. And it has continued unabated and is speeding up right now. So I think 1947 is marked as the let's say, formal beginning of the New World Order. Now, the sign that would be given, verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, before that child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, Ephraim will be destroyed. Now, people have asked, well, why didn't we learn about Pentecost a long time ago? Why didn't we learn about Passover a long time ago? It wasn't time. Let's ask another question. Why did we not learn about Emmanuel a long time ago? Because it is part and parcel with, and it is a sign of, the destruction of Ephraim. And that wasn't going to happen anytime soon when Herbert Armstrong lived, even though they thought it might happen in 72. And it didn't. Now, this knowledge came to us just before atonement in 2006. And the sermon that I gave on Emmanuel, showing that it is the name that they would call Yeshua, later, happened on Pentecost. Pentecost means what? At one meant with God. Emmanuel means what? God with us. I think it was ordained of God that God with us would be preached on at one meant with God. He is the bridegroom. We represent the bride. Atonement pictures the union of the two. God with his bride. Now, the church spoken of as a virgin. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, Emmanuel, not Yahshua. Remember, you call him Yahshua, they will call him Emmanuel. When? In the end time. Just before Ephraim falls. Now, 
has seemed that this birth-giving process that the church is in is long and interminable, hasn't it? Doesn't it say we'll travail trying to bring forth and bring forth the wind? I think that's one place it says in Isaiah. Micah 4 says what? Let's look at two or three of these very quickly. Micah. Oh no, Micah, here we are. Uh, it talks about a remnant here, which we know is the latter-day church under the two witnesses in verse 7. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So when the two, two witnesses establish the church in Zion and Jerusalem, the original ones, God will rule with them from them forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, Unto you shall it come, even the first dominion or rule, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Then it says, down in verse 10, you know, why, why are you crying in verse 9? For pang has taken, pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Talking about us right now. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. Virgin daughter of Zion, as it's said in other places. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field, the wilderness, and you shall go even to Babylon. Get out of the middle of it, get out of the cities, go dwell in the field, and there shall you be delivered. Delivered of what? The child that we are in travail to produce. What child is that? Christ in us the hope of glory that we're supposed to be producing in our character in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, it says we're supposed to be bringing forth Emmanuel. And that this will be a sign just before Ephraim falls. Tells us to go out in the wilderness and there we're going to have that child. We're going to produce Christ. We're going to become righteous. We will be counted as righteous and all our sins removed as a cloud in one day. In the day that we produce Emmanuel. Let's go to Isaiah 66 for a moment. Thus says the Eternal, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Then he talks about all the things that his hand has made and how he is going. He looks to those who are poor and of a contrite spirit and tremble at his word. In other words, those who are humble and meek. Doesn't it say the two witnesses are going to come in meekness and humility, that is, sackcloth and ashes. We have to get rid of pride, we have to get rid of ego and self, and become truly meek and humble. God draws to the humble, he resists the proud. Spiritually proud included in self-righteous. We have to get rid of that. Hear the word of the eternal, verse 5, you that tremble at his word. Who is that? Just his church. No one else does. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake. So the church casts out the faithful remnant. This just simply says what we've seen in so many scriptures. He'll appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple. Jerusalem and the temple. Not that bunch of heathen Jews in the counterfeit Jerusalem in the Middle East, but God's true people from the true Jerusalem 
and the real temple. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. God says then, Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Eternal? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says the Eternal? Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her. And it talks how we'll nurse at her breast and have consolation there, and so on. And the hand of God will be known toward his servants, verse 14. For the Eternal will come with fire, verse 15, and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And the slain of the Lord will be many, end of verse 16. So this is talking about the end time when the church travails and brings forth. Now to us it seems like forever, but God says we're going to look back on it and say, man, just as soon as we started to travail, we brought forth. Who's ever heard of such a thing? Now I asked somebody this morning to look up when I gave that sermon on Emmanuel, and I thought it was the spring of this year. But no, it was back in, at Atonement in 06. Now if you count till January of this year, when this knowledge of us being baptized in the Trinity came, that's more like 13, 14 months. So I thought, well, boy, does that blow my theory I'm talking about here? No, I don't think so. I think it was important that the name Emmanuel come out on atonement. Could have come out later, but at one month, and God with us, and he being our bridegroom, needed to be then. But now this knowledge about being rebaptized, possibly, because of the Trinitarian thing, not that it uh, means that our first baptism was not valid, but I think it is a new beginning with a new name for our Savior and the beginning of a new work that must be done. And it will happen just before Ephraim is destroyed. Now, if we learned of that and it was preached to us in atonement of 06, that brings us 13 or 14 months later. Now, most babies don't take that long to be born. But to us, this thing seems to go on forevermore. We keep saying, we're pushing, we're pushing, we're trying, God. Why doesn't it come? Now, maybe he has allowed this to go beyond nine months to let us go through a trial. You know, babies don't always come in exactly nine months. That's only the average. Sometimes it's a week or two before or a week or two after, and that's perfectly normal, depending on when that one's right. Thirteen, fourteen months is really, really, really pushing. None of you wanted to carry one that long, I know. And we haven't been comfortable carrying this one this long either, have we? It seemed like a long travail at this point. A little later on, it's going to seem like it didn't take long. You know, when a child is born, the mother forgets the pain and says, oh, what a wonderful, ugly little wrinkled thing. No, what a beautiful baby, she says. It's ugly, but she thinks it's pretty. Takes it about three days to get pretty. But she forgets the pain. And we'll be the same. This seems to have gone on forever, but when it happens, we'll forget the pain and say, wow, 
Look at this. So maybe God let it go this far, so that it seemed that way. Now, if that be the case, that a virgin conceived at atonement in 06, and then had a long gestation, seemingly endless time to bring forth a child, what if we then learn that our baptism was not exactly as it should have been, and secondarily, that we have learned that Emmanuel is a name that they will use. When is the context of a virgin conceiving and bringing forth Emmanuel? The end time, just before Ephraim falls. The conception may have occurred, Atonement 06, a long gestation and then a birth. Doesn't baptism picture, in a way, a birth? It pictures the beginning of things that lead to a birth, certainly. It pictures a death, because we die in Christ, and Christ only, not in the Trinity. But it also is the beginning of a new life, a new begettle, a new commission, a new beginning. You live physically, and you didn't go God's way, so you have a new beginning in spirit. Now, that new beginning essentially was in worldwide for most of us. We have a new beginning, the building of a latter-day, latter temple with different leadership that is going to come on the scene very shortly. And we have Ephraim, the United States, in a financial slide that is going to lead to the destruction of the, econ economy, of the economy of the world and the destruction of this country. And it is coming very rapidly, before 2012, if 47 is the correct beginning date. Now, if we <coughs> had a child begotten, Atonement 06, if we bring forth Christ in early 08, then before... He reaches the age to know good and evil. Ephraim will be destroyed. Now let's see one more example of that. It talks about the Assyrian coming and destroying at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8, Moreover, the Eternal said to me, Take you a great roll and write in it with a men's pen concerning Mahershalal Hashbaz. That name means make haste to the spoil or pray. The spoil of Ephraim is the antecedent here. And I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then said the Eternal to me, call his name, make haste to the spoil, or make haste to the prey. So not only would a virgin conceive and bring forth Christ, but also Isaiah went into his wife, and she conceived, and she too was to bring forth a child named, this thing's coming quickly, in modern vernacular. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, Daddy and Mommy, Father and Mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So two examples, one of us bringing forth Christ in our lives and bringing forth a new beginning with Emmanuel, God with us. 
God is salvation was Yeshua. God with us is Emmanuel. Christ said in Zechariah 2 of the two witnesses in the end time church, I will come and dwell with you. I will come to Zion and dwell with you forevermore when you bring forth my character, when you look like me. If we are baptized in Emmanuel, we should then have a greater blessing of his spirit than when we were baptized in God is salvation, a more general term that ultimately applies to everyone, but God with us, Emmanuel, applies to the end time church and at the end time. Just before Ephraim is destroyed, not in Herbert Armstrong's day, but just before this nation is destroyed, a virgin church will conceive and bring forth Emmanuel, if you will. Right before it goes down. So if that new beginning is occurring now, and we are baptized in the name of Emmanuel, the fall of Ephraim will come before that child is old enough to know good or evil, or in Isaiah's case, before it can say daddy and mommy. Now, that happens with children, what, age 12, or 12 months, 13, 14 months, depending on the kid, when they begin to crawl and then walk, and they can begin to say daddy, dada, mama, somewhere right in that range, isn't it? And they begin to learn as they walk what's good and what's evil. Don't touch that, don't touch this, touch this. So, if it be that 47 is the year, 2012 is the terminal point, and this has to happen within, that is before, 65 years. The conception occurred in 06 when we first heard of it, God with us at one meant with God. We bring forth Emmanuel, January, February of 2008, then I would say the fall of Ephraim has to come in the next 11 to 15 months for this prophecy to fit. Now do you see why it might be important and why God brought this particular topic to our attention now and why he brought Emmanuel when he did? and what is already beginning to occur, occur right before our eyes, the economic and financial slide of America into oblivion, which is going to anger the entire world, and they're going to come and take us into captivity, and God will protect his people in the true Zion and Jerusalem in Ephraim, the original land of Judah, the original land of Ephraim, the original land that was promised to Abraham and that his seed seed would inherit. Where are the peace of the land of promise? This is the land of Ephraim and the land of Judah, and it is about to be destroyed. And I want to bring forth Emmanuel in my life, God with us, so that I might be included in those who sing in the heights of Zion the glory of all the land. I know this has taken a long time, but I feel right now is Quite a few are going to be baptized into Emmanuel tonight, and a few already have been this past week. 
that it was important we get this whole story in so that we might consider it in terms of whether we want to be baptized into Emmanuel or whether we are content with the past baptism. I do not believe it makes the past baptism invalid. It only went so far. It was a beginning, and we did receive the beginning of God's Spirit. But I think this is another level, another commission, a new beginning. And that being baptized into Emmanuel may be a very, very important part of it so that we can begin to grow in him. I felt a little funny once in a while using Emmanuel since Atonement 06 because I keep thinking God has turned his face from us and he doesn't hear us. And how can I say God with us when he's still got his face turned away? But we've been getting used to the idea and using it more and more over these past 13, 14 months. And now, if we are baptized into Emmanuel, it is a death with him, but it is also a new beginning of the Spirit within us. And I think that we can pray for an increased amount of that Spirit because it is very clear throughout the Scriptures that the end-time work is going to have an increased amount of God's Spirit. And this might be the very beginnings of that. I don't mean that suddenly just because we're baptized in Emmanuel, suddenly, you know, mountains are going to start moving. But it could be a beginning that will lead to that kind of thing. So I think that it is certainly worth our consideration, and it seems to fit this prophecy, even as we see Ephraim about to be destroyed. And it looks like it will happen very shortly. If a child were born today, before he could say, Daddy and Mommy are no good from evil, Ephraim will be destroyed. So, think that over.